This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. First thing out of my mouth was I wanted to work for the DEA. Picking things up from where we left off last episode, Joe just admitted to a Kansas highway patrolman that he was transporting 66 pounds of marijuana, 374 grand in cash, and a gun in the back of a rented minivan. Sitting in cuffs on the side of a turnpike, he watched the cop rifle through the contraband. He knew that his days smuggling for the syndicate were over. But Joe had hatched a plan to save his own hide. I told the state that I wanted to work for the DEA. They took me back to the state patrol office. Uh, waiting for somebody to show up. Two DEA agents showed up and we start talking. At first, Joe played coy, not wanting to play his entire hand. He dropped a few hints about the size and scale of the syndicate. This was a sophisticated interstate trafficking operation, he said. He'd personally transported thousands of pounds of pot for the group out of Colorado to surrounding states. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. The syndicate had been at it for much longer than Joe had, supplying some of the best weed in the Twin Cities. So maybe if they let him off the hook, would the DEA be interested in learning more? Like anyone who's seen even one mobster movie, Joe understood that ratting could mean the difference between going home or going to jail. Knowledge was power. When I met Joe in Texas, he admitted to playing people off each other, and not just the police. Tree's organization was always my throwaway organization. As shitty as that sounds, that was my goal. You know, so when I... And what do you mean by your throwaway organization? Like if I get... If if things go sideways, I'm never going to talk about these groups. I'm going to talk about these groups, you know, or, or... You know what I mean? Strike a deal with law enforcement. Protect yourself and, and the people you care about by... Yeah. Um, revealing information about trees organizations. Yeah. Remember, Joe already had a career in smuggling before he started working for Tree and the Syndicate. This included business deals with a skydiving friend named Alex, as well as some hustling for associates in California. Rather than have law enforcement dig into all corners of his life and turn up dirt on his skydiving friends, Joe diverted the Fed's attention towards the Syndicate. That way, he could protect the people he really cared about. The people in my family, the, the people in my industry. The skydiving industry. You know, I yeah. can continue to work in this industry because I protected everybody else in the industry. The DEA took the bait. Federal agents agreed to use Joe as a confidential informant in return for the promise of a lenient plea deal. Even more than Cowboy's confession to Denver police six months earlier, Joe's agreement ushered in the syndicate's demise. By turning coat, Joe transformed a local investigation into an interagency effort and exposed the syndicate to the full resources of the DEA. Here's DEA agent Randy Ladd with the Denver field office, which was previously unaware of the Denver Police Department's case. We got a call. An individual got stopped in um, Kansas He says individual because the DEA can't confirm the names of confidential informants like Joe Johnson. And we agreed to pool the resources from the DEA. So all of those law enforcement resources came together 
That also included financial investigators from the state of Colorado's Department of Revenue. So now, agencies from three branches of government, local, state, and federal, were working together to take down the syndicate. And once they pooled resources, they made a formidable team. DEA, we like to use the terms of disrupt and dismantle. There's some organizations that we disrupt. This organization we dismantled. I'm Chris Walker, your host in the series about high-flying pot smugglers, the rise and fall of a criminal enterprise, and the evolution of marijuana's black market in the era of legal weed. From Foxipus Inc. and Imperative Entertainment, this is The Syndicate. The DEA wasted no time in using their new man on the inside. He told me to meet up with two agents from Minneapolis. And just like that, Joe found himself back on the highway, heading north in the same rental van he'd been pulled over in. Except this time, he had new instructions. In Minneapolis, Joe would meet up with another pair of DEA agents who'd attach a wire to him. Then, the feds wanted Joe to make his scheduled meeting with Tom Dispinet and record the interaction. If Joe could catch Tom saying anything incriminating about illegal marijuana and their associates in Colorado, that might be useful evidence in court. Joe agreed, but it didn't take a genius to spot a major hole in the plan. The DEA held on to the 66 pounds of marijuana and $374,000 from his car, which meant Joe had to show up empty-handed. That was the most insane thing I ever, I could ever imagine. I mean, it did put me in a very, very tight, um, uncomfortable spot, you know, trying to explain, well, yeah, I got, I got stopped on a traffic stop and they're like, well, why are you fucking driving? And um, were, you, were you scared about telling them just showing up without all that money? I, dude, I was, you know, I'm like, I couldn't believe that they were, this is how it's gonna work, you know? I mean, I would think that they would let it all back out to preserve the case and to preserve one's safety, you know? I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I was afraid for my life for more at more than one time. Um, and they kept on reassuring me that, you know, these guys are college friends, whatever, you know? I mean, yeah, some most of them might be college friends, but some of them aren't. And when you get into an organization that big, um, it wouldn't have been a far stretch to think that, you know, I could get ran over crossing the street. Somehow, Joe had to make Tom believe that cops pulled him over in Kansas, confiscated all the pot and cash, and then let Joe go on his merry way without any repercussions. I couldn't get law enforcement to explain the rationale. But from Joe's vantage point, he didn't see any other choice but to go along with the half-baked cover story. When he made it to the Twin Cities, he called Tom on a burner phone and they met at a restaurant on Minneapolis's east side the two settled into a booth. Joe was only halfway through his story before Tom flipped out. And he couldn't even believe I still had my phone. So we fucking trashed our phones together. They threw the devices in a dumpster outside the restaurant. Tom pressed Joe for answers right there in the parking lot. Yeah, I don't know what you're, you're breaking routine. You're not giving the money over to where it's supposed to go. So my money's already in your hands in the wrong place, not here, what's going on? The longer Joe talked, the less sense it made. Tom told Joe to get the hell away from him. He needed to call Tree and figure out what to do next. Except by this point, 
Joe had already accomplished his first mission as a DEA mole, record Tom talking about the shipment of marijuana and money. And the feds were just getting started. Within days, the DEA assigned two of its undercover agents in Minneapolis to surveil Tom. They'd mark his every movement and tail him in nondescript cars, hiding from behind newspapers and sunglasses, blend in the way they were trained. The agents started to follow Tom's movements, but to their surprise... I'm still doing oil changes on my truck. I was putting that on the lift. Tom noticed a black device stuck underneath the chassis next to the oil pan. I was like, great, there's the, the tracker. This is wonderful. Tom took the truck to a mechanic friend to get a second opinion, just to be sure. And the guy looked at it too, and, and I just gave him the, Shh, this is great. You know, talk about sunk. That's when things clicked into place. Staring at the tracker on his car, Tom understood that Joe must have worn a wire. The writing was on the wall. And also, as it turned out, on his door. I mean, there was a time where I went back to CT's house by myself, not, not, no, not, not telling the DEA. And uh, I, I wrote a little message on his door um, to try to get him to, to, to talk to me. Like, listen, motherfucker, we, we need to fucking talk, <laughs> you know? Joe was going rogue. The DEA never told him to write on Tom's door. But Joe was an eager informant. As he saw it, the more damning recordings of Tom, the less likely Joe was to face jail time. Joe came over and scribbled a bunch of shit with the good permanent marker. Great. Um, I decided to rid that so I didn't have to stare at, we should talk. That was his good line. The line failed to produce its desired effect. And I went back and to talk to him and the door's off the house <laughs> and he's painting it. Joe remembers taking a quick look inside the house, failing to find Tom, then leaving. But Tom has a different recollection. He was sneaking around on my property another time, looking in that door that was empty, and I'm on the other side of the fence going, and he's like, what, what, we're cool. Things weren't cool. Tom felt sure Joe had a hidden recorder on him. He also knew Joe liked to carry a gun. So instead of a nice amicable conversation, Tom took off running. Literally running on streets near here from him, and he's in his Jeep trying to throw me a duffel bag of I don't know what or whatever, like everything's cool. Here, get on board. And every attack that they could to set me up further. It was surreal. Why was Joe chasing him? And what was he trying to do with the duffel bag? Plant evidence? Tom cut through side yards and alleyways until he'd lost sight of the Jeep. He never saw Joe again. Even so, to use Tom's phrasing, the attacks kept up. Sorry, I know everybody's movements in the neighborhood. I've been here long enough. It was really easy to see two white guys wearing hoodies that were crawling by my car one day. And I see them after dark and I'm like, hey guys, and they had their, their minivan parked right by me. And I was like, hey, what's going on? What are you looking for? The men responded, we see a raccoon, and I'm like, you're crawling under for a critter under my car. And it's like, guys, all right, I get it. We're going to see each other later. But I mean, really crying, hurting inside, ready to say, yeah, the jig's up. Bring me in. Let's not drag this out. The psychodrama, I was so ready for it to, to be done, for them to have to do the extra steps. It was just a lot of good torture. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Tom may have recognized his days were numbered, but uncovering his distribution network in Minneapolis only made up one part of a now multi-agency investigation. The DEA ordered Joe to return to Denver to help gather evidence on the syndicate's activities. In Colorado, Joe teamed up with the Denver police to identify the syndicate's operatives and warehouses. And they would have you, what, just like ride around with them? Yeah, so um, one of the guys, big black guy, Fucking, he paraded me around um, while they're standing out in front of the fucking thing. The officer drove Joe past the warehouses in an unmarked vehicle, telling him, Just lay down in the back, they won't see you. But Joe was afraid of being seen, especially since his law enforcement handlers still expected him to secretly record meetings with high-ranking members of the syndicate. As nervous as he felt, Joe didn't have any other options. I met with the big tall guy with the beard, uh, Patrick. Pat Kincannon, who told Joe that their business together was suspended until they figured out what to do about the money and weed cops took from him. Then Joe met with Kyler Gerbich, garbage breath, who surprised Joe by asking him to take off his shirt. Kyler searched Joe for a wire and came up empty-handed. He didn't know that the DEA embedded a microphone into one of Joe's shoes. Remember that, drug smugglers. Check the shoes. Kyler really wanted to give Joe the benefit of the doubt, since he'd brought Joe into the syndicate to begin with. But like everyone else, he thought Joe's cover story just didn't make sense. Shortly after the meeting, Kyler gave one of his bud tenders, Adam Tilly, a ride in his car. Tilly recalls the tense trip. We were driving away from his original facility. At a stoplight, Kyler admitted that something really worried him. And he made me lean over as he whispered it into my ear. Joe's a rat. And I was like, this is like some real movie shit. Like, we're like trying to beat a bug right now. <laughs> like, Joe helped his handlers ID members of the syndicate and recorded some meetings with its top brass. But he still couldn't get any FaceTime with the man at the very top. Tree would not meet with me. Tree didn't respond to texts or phone calls. Eventually, Joe and his handlers accepted that he'd missed his window of opportunity. Tom warned Tree long before Joe had a chance to get him on tape. But in law enforcement's view, that was okay. Every confidential informant has a lifespan, and Joe had been useful before his lifespan ended. Behind the scenes, law enforcement kept busy putting his larger case together. It divided specialties between agencies, which included tax experts with the state of Colorado. The team looking into the syndicate's finances recruited special agent Steve Bratton at Colorado's Department of Revenue. Bratton's specialty? Tracing drug money and trafficking schemes just like this one. Bratton got to work, poring over records, showing cash flowing into and out of the organization's coffers. It wasn't long before he cracked the syndicate's elaborate money laundering tactics. Tree had set this entire organization up and this entire scheme up to sign false leases to give the money to the caregivers who would then take that money and go get the money orders. Money orders would then go back to Tree. Tree would then deposit it as um, basically as rental income, 
where all the money was just coming from uh, Minnesota, from the distributions. Bratton was impressed. This had gone undetected for years because Tree knew about a loophole in financial reporting. Uh, the money orders were also under a specific amount, so well, as yeah. to not trigger reporting to the IRS, correct? Uh, tre- treasury. Okay. Or there's, there's, again, I don't want to give too much away, but we have to be respectful of operational <laughs> security. The goal of this, uh, of, of what we're willing to impart, is not to give the next generation of black marketeers any words of wisdom that he or she can then use to say, ah, law enforcement and prosecutors gave me a great idea as to how to structure and layer funds. I don't think we're going to do that in this interview. That was a prosecutor at the attorney general's office butting in. And in case you're wondering about the specific dollar amount under which money orders are not reported to the Department of Treasury, it's right in the public documents surrounding this investigation. I also hinted at it back in episode three. The reason Alicia Rainey told me People constantly put in $999. Is because there are no reporting requirements for money orders at or below $1,000. The more you know. Anyway. That's how he was doing it. That's how Tree's money laundering scheme was set up. While the Denver police and the DEA conducted surveillance and gathered intel, Bratton dug up other financial records. He identified bank accounts with the fake rental income, amounts Tree paid for utility bills and crop insurance, as well as big-ticket purchases like cars, Tree's Audi, for example, which Bratton attributed to proceeds from illegal marijuana distribution. Following the trails was painstaking work, but by October 2014, state prosecutors felt they had enough evidence to dismantle the syndicate by force. But what to call this takedown? Last episode, I told you to remember the University of Minnesota's sports mascot. When prosecutors in Colorado learned that members of the syndicate like Tom went to and dealt weed there, they took some inspiration from the school's sports team. They codenamed their takedown Operation Golden Gopher. On October 28th, scores of cops and SWAT team members assembled into tactical units at the crack of dawn. Their targets were still asleep. It must have been five, six o'clock in the morning. Just hear glass breaking. With stun grenades, body armor, assault rifles, battering rams, and shotguns, the squads were ready for anything. Easily we had between 100 and 120 law enforcement personnel to execute this. At that point, I'm thinking someone's breaking into the house, so I get up and I start walking down the steps and they come right at me, throw me down, have me pinned down against the ground rifle to my head. The SWAT teams hit 18 different locations across Denver and Minneapolis over the next 36 hours. You have your priorities that you lay down. Those priorities began with the syndicate's leadership. The agencies knew better than to give anyone time to hide illegal drugs and money. Their top targets included Pat Kincannon. Like throw my wife down at that point, I'm screaming on top of my lungs, she's pregnant. She's got nothing to do with this. I'm the one you want. Just leave her alone. And I keep going over and over again. She's pregnant. You gotta be careful with her. And they're throwing her down the ground. And I'm saying, what are you guys doing? It's just, we, we're not fighting back. You know, just let her go. She's pregnant. She's pregnant. And one of the, I remember this distinctly, one of the SWAT teams says, these guys are probably cartel. They're probably cartel. And I'm saying, I'm not cartel. Look at me. I'm not cartel. I'm going to work with you guys. Just please calm down. 
but from his position on the floor, watching officers turn drawers upside down, pull apart mattresses, toss his belongings around the house, Pat couldn't follow his own advice. He couldn't calm down. Nor did he know that at that moment, many of his friends and associates were in the same predicament. Friends like Tom in Minneapolis. Cold, naked, kicked on the ground and usual, all the name calling. As well as the syndicate's kingpin, Tree. Special Agent Steve Bratton recalls the raid. Okay, this is a, this is down in Cherry Creek, right? It's a nice apartment. I think he was paying uh, $3,500 a month or $4,000 a month for it, so it's a nice place. And he can obviously afford it. And so we go and we did uh, warrants at his house, and that's the house that I was at. Cops and SWAT officers busted through the front door of Tree's apartment at dawn and found him home alone. The officers yanked him out of his room and told him to sit on a couch while they searched his house. And so in this house, there's literally money everywhere. There was, yeah, so his wife at one point in time in Minnesota had a massage business or something. And yeah, there was 20 some thousand dollars found in like the head, like the pillow of a, like a massage or massage pillow you put your face into or whatever. Right, the one with the hole cut out of the middle. Yeah, so there's like $26,000 like found in this head thing. And then there was another bag of money like that was at the bottom of his, underneath all of his dirty laundry. And then there was a shoebox full of money. And then the one that I remember is we flipped over the mattress and he had like, like a memory foam mattress. And so he had like a king size sheet, like a, uh, like one of those sheets that would cover the entire bed. So we flipped this thing up and I was like, dude, what are those rectangles? What is that? And so we cut the sheet off and he had $196,000 that was literally stuck to the bottom of the bed. The whole entire bottom of the mattress was rectangles. Meanwhile, in the other room, despite all of his hiding places folding one by one, Tree didn't react. It's like sitting kind of on my left. That's interesting that he was there. Was he surprised? Tree's a, um, he's a very reserved individual, you know, uh, very confident, very reserved. So I think he was surprised, but he, um, he didn't show it. We ended up finding uh, $750,000 in this ho- in a two-bedroom apartment. Stuffed everywhere. I mean, every drawer, every... I mean, there was money everywhere. It was unbelievable. SWAT teams didn't find nearly as much money anywhere else, including at Pat's house. It's, it's actually, what, three, four days before Halloween, so it's cold, and the doors are wide open. There's glass everywhere. There's, there's, I just remember being freezing. As he sat shivering in his underwear, officers kept pressing him. Where's the money? Where's the money? The money? The money? Unsatisfied with Pat's answers, they turned to his pregnant girlfriend. They separate us immediately, talk to us for a little bit, and then let us put our clothes back on because we're both in our um, pajamas or underwear. Pat fumed at what he felt was a completely over-the-top police raid. In the chaos, his dog bolted out of the house. When they threw the the bombs and she took off and we never saw her ever again um, and when I brought that up they just laughed in my face and said we don't care about that and I said well can you send someone to go look for the dog or you guys aren't arresting me can I go find the dog no we're not we can't leave here obviously Pat couldn't leave the officers pressed him with questions they questioned us separately they're showing us pictures of of everyone and of course I at that point um, I'm not saying anything because I know 
my rights and I know that I'm not going to say anything and I know my girlfriend's not going to say anything. And they're showing us pictures and as they're showing us pictures I realize they're showing me pictures of every single person that's involved in this. And they clearly have got this figured out. You know, Tom, Joe Johnson, T, all of, everyone at the, everyone at the warehouse, um, even people that used to work and are back in Minnesota or back somewhere else. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is uh, this is oh, this is this is a big deal. As an organization, the syndicate was done. After completing 18 search warrants on homes and the syndicate's warehouses, law enforcement seized $1.4 million, 1,900 marijuana plants, 4,600 pounds of marijuana trim, 160 pounds of flour, 600 grams of marijuana concentrate, and over one pound of hash oil. Lower-level employees who tended to the grow houses showed up to work the next day to find police tape strung across the front doors. They tried reaching managers like Tree, Pat, and Kyler, but couldn't get a response. The raids, followed by sudden silence, bred an atmosphere of fear. Everyone wanted information about who'd been arrested and who might be next. So some of the employees decided to meet at a bar to try to figure out what had happened. So it was like five of us or something like that that met at the Thin Man. Um, but then after 10 minutes or so of being there, there was a helicopter basically circling directly over the Thin Man. And I think all of us, just in the situation we were in, were very weary and uh, um, paranoid. Paranoid's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, so I, we all just split and went our separate directions. And I don't think anybody really talked to anybody for a long period after that. Unbeknownst to Tilly and others in the syndicate, this was the investigator's plan. To begin with, law enforcement needed time to sift through all the computers, phones, and records they'd obtained to find incriminating evidence. The cops also knew that by laying low, while keeping tabs on the syndicate's members, they could sow uncertainty and hopefully cause people to rat on each other to avoid criminal charges. For all his business savvy, Tree never prepared for this contingency. While he had taught his warehouse managers to repeat the caregiver yarn, he had no real strategy in place to coordinate everyone's unwieldy cover stories. It basically came down to hoping longtime friends and family members wouldn't throw each other under the bus. It was everyone for themselves. Deny, isolate, and pray for the best. But Tree wasn't going to sit around and wait. He didn't know why cops hadn't arrested him, but he knew he had to move fast. First, he needed money, as much as he could pull together. When Christine returned from Minnesota with the kids, finding her apartment in ruins from the SWAT raid, Tree asked her to recover whatever cash was left in their bank accounts before the cops got to that too. Christine went to a branch of U.S. Bank where she had a safe deposit box in her name. Except something was odd. She fumbled and fumbled with the security code and couldn't get the box open. When she finally went to the front desk to ask the branch manager about it, he handed her a business card. On it was the name and number of DEA agent Randy Ladd. It was a message. The cops were closing in and they wanted Tree to know it. Tree still managed to find plenty of money somewhere. Maybe there was a bag of cash hidden in the Rockies? Because he and Christine retained one of Colorado's most expensive lawyers 
from a firm known for representing NFL sports stars embroiled in scandals. Once Tree had legal representation, he learned why law enforcement didn't arrest any of the syndicate's members during its raids. The state was going the grand jury route. A very quick explainer on grand juries. The panels are made up of randomly selected citizens, and as jurors, they meet in secret to go over evidence, hear prosecutors' arguments, and decide what charges to level against individuals in big felony cases. The federal government and states often use grand juries for complex drug trafficking cases that involve dozens of criminal charges and multiple suspects that prosecutors can charge all at once rather than bring them to court with separate cases. So long as the suspects aren't violent or a flight risk, they can remain free until the grand jury issues its indictment. That often takes months. And so as 2014 rolled into 2015, and more than four months went by since the police conducted their raids, a few members of the syndicate decided to leave Colorado. Unlike Tree, they didn't realize they were still in hot water. One even left the mainland. Ended up leaving, packed most of my shit up here, and I was in Puerto Rico first week of December until March. Yeah, I mean, and this is a really interesting period because it was, I mean, quite a long time. And so, I mean, as the months roll by, it's kind of like, hmm, maybe they're not going to charge me or... I was thinking that. I was thinking, well, maybe they got, you know, what they wanted or they don't have enough. And yeah. it was a weird, weird sensation. I actually got a call from my son while I was on Puerto Rico. Dad, you're, you're in the news. I'm like, oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. That's because on March 25th, the Attorney General's office in Colorado released the grand jury's 52-count indictment against members of the syndicate. State grand jury indicted 32 people connected to the ring, including growers, drug mules, hash producers, and even pilots. Today, law enforcement in Colorado is serving notice that we will not tolerate criminal behavior. Colorado voters legalized medical and recreational marijuana use, but their decision does not give a free pass to those who ignore government regulations and criminal laws. Activity like we are highlighting today undermines the white market's credibility and profit margins and evades the payment of taxes. That last voice was then-Colorado Attorney General Cynthia Kaufman. Throughout the state, and especially in Denver, the news landed with a bang. Every outlet covered the syndicate's bust, including the newsroom I was working in at the time. Journalists and readers alike couldn't believe the fact that Tree and his organization had operated for years under the guise of being a legitimate marijuana business right underneath regulators' noses. But the news came as a real shock to members of the syndicate who thought they'd already been through the worst of it. It's not like they received a courtesy phone call from the prosecutor's office informing them that an indictment had come out. Many found out like Tom, who remembers getting a call from a friend. You're telling me that tonight I'm the lead story? Marijuana smuggling ring based in Colorado is now out of business. And just look at all the faces here. 32 people behind bars accused of playing some part in that massive illegal pot operation. And we're watching it, and it's like, oh, it's tough, you know, to see huh, your face roll on the screen. And, oh, I'm so guilty. And damn it, you know. Boy, I feel wrong for selling all that pot now. And then I'm thinking, oh, does this, 
man, I'm so wanted. I turn myself, you know, how, what do you do? And of course, it's the, the do, die, run, sink, but all of it, the emotion, a lot of crying calls. What was your first call? I mean, like, did you call your parents first? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I was all broke up, and then she could tell something was real wrong. They were real surprised. And I was like, yeah, I guess I made the news. After the indictment came out, all 32 people charged by the grand jury had to turn themselves in. If they didn't, law enforcement agencies would issue warrants for their arrests. The syndicate's members scrambled for lawyers, and those who had good ones or had prepared ahead of time negotiated their surrenders, including how much jail time he or she might face before standing trial. But everyone's lives and relationships with each other were about to change. Pat remembers the day he went to turn himself in at a police station. So we had to turn ourselves in that one time. And I went to, instead of going to the downtown Denver one, I decided to go to the, the one in Cherry Creek. Um, and I walked in, and as I walked in, T was sitting there with his lawyer. And he got up, and I looked at him, and I could tell he was sad. And I could tell he probably wanted to give me a hug. And um, I was like, I can't do this. You know, and I couldn't do it because A, I was afraid I was going to cry and he was going to cry and we were going to get real emotional. And then B, I was also afraid that maybe I was going to get angry. Maybe after a minute there, I was going to say, what were you thinking? Or what were we thinking? Or why did you, da, da, da. you know, I just didn't, you don't know where your mind is at because your emotions are controlling everything. So instead, I walked right by him, and I just made up some question to ask the clerk. And she said, yeah, you need to go over there or something. And I just turned around, and I walked out, and I called my lawyer, and I said, I'm not turning myself in today. I can't do this. You've got to call the prosecutor, the DA, and let them know it'll be either later today or tomorrow, but it can't happen. I'm a wreck. The next time Pat went to the police station, Tree wasn't there. And because of what happened next... Pat doesn't know if he will ever see him again, or if he even wants to. Coming up. They let me know the magic number 46 every time I saw them, that I was facing 46 years in prison if I didn't cooperate. Jail cells fill up and the syndicate's members feel the squeeze. You just need to stop because okay. you know you're lying, right? You know you're not being forthright. Some close ranks. They don't talk bad about him. The whole family took care of him. Others sing like canaries. People can say they hate me for talking to the police. But what did it mean for those decades-long friendships? And what about justice? Did the crime fit the punishment? We'll wrap all that up, along with a few surprise revelations in the final episode of The Syndicate. The Syndicate is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Foxipus Inc. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and edited by Laura Krantz and Scott Carney. The Syndicate is scored and mixed by Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Chris Walker. This podcast was made possible in part by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Visit thesyndicatepodcast.com for more about this story. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Syndicate. If you're enjoying it, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more people find out about our show.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.